Book three, chapter one of The Mask by Florence Irwin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book three, Haven. One morning in early May, Alison Howland said to her husband, Phil, I want to go away to spend the day, and I want to go alone. Very well, he replied. Far be it from me to interfere with your plans. He was a little piqued till he noticed a smile in her eyes. I have arranged your day for you. Lena will give you luncheon, and I'm going to leave you some work that will keep you busy. She ran out of the room and returned with a big paper parcel. It's something I've been doing all winter, she said rather breathlessly. I don't want you to look at it until I'm gone. I don't want to be here while you are reading it, nor to see you, nor to speak to you till you've finished it and tonight I want you to give me your honest opinion about it. He looked at her curiously. She was evidently laboring under some unusual excitement, though she strove to hold it in check. You've written all this? he asked. What is it? It's a story, a novel. Don't even take the wrapper off till I'm gone. I haven't the slightest idea whether the thing is any good or not. I want an outside opinion. When did you ever get the time to do it? She looked at him and laughed mischievously. When you were spending the winter with Mrs. Deverall, she replied. Oh, bosh! Well, Al, I shall be delighted to read it, of course. You've got a darned good mind for a woman. But you lack experience, you know, and you won't be hurt if I criticize it pretty bluntly. Certainly not. I want nothing so much as a candid opinion. I have no technical knowledge, naturally, except what I have learned from my course at Columbia. In that, you'll probably have to slash me all to pieces. I realize that my lack of experience is a terrible drawback, and yet, do you know, in some ways I don't regret it. You don't? No, because it so sharpens impressions. Things that seem tremendous to me are simply commonplaces to more sated and seasoned observers. I believe that's the hardest thing about it. When you're fresh to impression, you're too inexperienced to record it with any degree of art. And after you've acquired your art, the edge has gone from your perception. You are less impressionable. It's another form of that wonderful French proverb, si la jeunesse savait, si la vieille pouvait. I think that is the saddest wisdom I ever heard. He threw her a quick look. She had said a number of curiously striking things lately. Where are you going? he asked. Oh, I don't know. Out into the country somewhere. I have the wanderlust. I shall take my luncheon with me and just spend the day roaming. I'll sit in the hedgerows and under the trees and use my time wondering what you are thinking of my story. I'll wander and wonder, and I'll be back by dusk. You shouldn't be walking around alone in that way. Nonsense, she said quickly, but she looked pleased. I won't get out of sight of the houses. I shall be as safe as the Bank of England. All her arrangements having been made in advance, it did not take her long to get ready. When she returned, hatted and coated, her husband was sitting with his back to her. Bending, she dropped a light kiss on the crown of his head. 
If that stuff of mine is any good, she said, I shall expect you hereafter to treat me with proper respect. Don't I treat you with proper respect now? She shook her head. He couldn't tell how fast her heart was beating, how carefully she had rehearsed every move in this game that she had planned, how wildly she was hoping that not a single one might miscarry, how hard she was trying to avoid wounding his self-respect, even while she dropped the necessary hints. No, she said, when I come to be a really important person, I shall expect you to rise whenever I enter the room. Good-bye, dear. And blowing him a kiss, she hurried out. She was so excited that she forgot all about taking a car. She walked rapidly, her head held high, her breath coming quickly, her eyes big and eager, and a rather wistful smile on her lips. Along the street, bunches of daffodils and violets and arbutus were being offered for sale. Their perfumed breath mingled with her fancies and gave her the feeling of being a girl again back in Coningsboro, responding with every fiber of her being to the call of the spring, and yet totally ignorant of what that call meant or of what life held in store. How seriously she used to take all those problems which seemed so important how she used to worry over poor little rat-faced Joey Mengle and his home training. Well, after all, why not? Perhaps her sense of real values had been keener then than now. Perhaps she had let it get blunted. Before she realized it, she found herself at 42nd Street. She was a vagabond for the day. Nothing called her. She could go where she pleased. She had started out with a dim idea of directing her steps towards one of the ferries. But since she was here, it made no difference. The Grand Central Station would do just as well. Inquiry elicited the information that she had just time to catch a train up the Hudson which was leaving in ten minutes. She bought a return ticket to a point some twenty miles out and, entering the car, chose a seat on the riverside and immediately fell into a brown study. It is safe to say that of all the passengers in that car, not one was thinking and planning farther ahead than was this tall, slender girl in black with the knot of violets at her breast. The present had fallen entirely away from her. No thoughts of meals, nor of clothes, nor of parties, nor of servants distracted her. Nine out of every ten of the women around her were palpitating over one or another of these subjects, while their husbands in town were wrestling with business, or bonds, or employees, or employers. None of these things disturbed Alison Howland. Every particle of her mind, every ounce of her force, every one of her hopes and fears were centered around her great scheme. She was about to play a long game for a big stake. If she lost, she would lose heavily. She couldn't quite visualize her future under those conditions. But if she won, she would win everything that she wanted in the world. Alighting at her station, she wandered, simply wandered, until she was tired and hungry. Glancing at her watch, she found that it was half-past two, and she sat down to eat her luncheon under a tree. Half-past two. Where would Phil be by this time in her manuscript? He read rapidly. 
she hoped that he wouldn't read too rapidly. There were certain bits that she didn't want him to miss. One by one she ran them over in her own mind. She knew them all by heart. Would he like such and such a one? Would he disapprove of such another? Suddenly, with one of those quick mental revulsions which come to every creator, she felt that her whole story was worthless. It was just ordinary trash. It had no particular merit. How could she ever have supposed that it had? And with this thought came the feeling that the bottom had dropped out of everything. If she couldn't write, if her story was no good, her scheme couldn't possibly succeed. Oh, she couldn't bear that. Succeed she must. She had worked so hard, she had tried so hard, she had prayed so hard, she had hoped so hard, that she simply could not stand failure. And it wasn't as if her plan was selfish. If she were putting all this effort into something from which she alone would benefit, it would be different. But she wasn't. She wasn't. And so, in alternating fits of elation and depression, she spent her day, till the lengthening shadows and the sunset glow warned her that she must return and end her suspense. She craved, and yet dreaded, the verdict that awaited her. At home, Phil's day had been scarcely less harrowing. No less, indeed, except for the fact that his mind was necessarily occupied, while his wife's was free. As soon as Alison had gone, he had betaken himself to his study. When Lena had tapped to announce luncheon, he replied that he was too busy to come out. She might bring him a bite of food and a cup of tea. And just as dusk fell, he finished his task and sat staring into space. The manuscript in his hands was called The Mask. And there was no question as to its merit. Phillips Howland would have given years of his life to have been its author. With varying emotions he had read it. He had opened it with an interested tolerance, expecting to find about the sort of thing that one would ordinarily find under like conditions. The first work of a writer who has lived in the world just twenty-five years, and who has known life itself but three of those twenty-five, is not apt to be wonderful. A prodigy writes earlier. A normal writer does his best work after longer experience. Not necessarily writing experience, just experience. For instance, as far as Phil Howland knew, his wife had never had a sentimental tete-a-tete -tete with any man but him, except that one short experience with Ferris. And but for the one with Kepner, he was right. What he failed to understand was that to a woman of Alison's type, self-communion was the one great necessity. She could watch the enthralling drama of life and then thresh it all out with herself. Well, anyhow, be the process what it might, this story of hers was remarkable. Not perfect, naturally, but distinctly striking. There was a breadth to it, a perception, that fairly astounded the man who read it. So, it appeared, innocence and decency weren't necessarily limitations after all. They might even tend to clarify vision. There was a spotlight brilliancy about some of Alison's flashes that was dazzling. 
she had succeeded in catching that first quick feeling that had been her own response to new experiences and in recording it the lack of grandiose qualities in her nature was reflected in a corresponding simplicity and directness of style she had thought of herself not at all of her audience not at all of her subject exclusively and vitally her viewpoint was placed at a refreshingly original angle phil himself would have given much to possess such an outlook despite his beautiful style his everlasting barrier had been lack of original ideas he had manner but he lacked matter and that was his trouble he felt very bitter over it it wasn't his fault that inspiration wouldn't come hour after hour had he chased it it was like the old recipe for hare pie first catch your hair that unfortunately was the one thing he couldn't do well would he have known how to dress it after he caught it the trouble was to get it hang it all anyhow why should al have all this luck if he were any judge of things there would be no trouble whatever in finding a publisher for her story and it would make a hit and he would then be forced to appear as the husband of the successful writer he phillips howland author of the inca and of mountebanks but here he squirmed a little where under heaven had al learned her style and where did she get all that clean breezy clearness of perception all that force and originality as a matter of fact this need not have surprised him so greatly alison howland was the exact woman to have done what she had done she had a natural endowment of mentality and sensibility that was far above the average the clean habit of her training had made for vigor her beloved occupation of just feeling things had served to sensitize her mind to receive and fix impressions her sudden accumulation of knowledge and experience had given her a longing to express herself and to make some record of the things that so struck her lack of human companionship had driven her to writing and by her conscientious study of the beautiful style which was her husband's birthright she had formed her own manner why should she not be able to write a book several times that day as phil howland sat reading his wife's manuscript he was assailed with a jealousy of which he was instantly ashamed each time he put it quickly away from him he wouldn't be small he wouldn't be mean not to al he couldn't go back on her after the way she'd seen him through he'd play fair if he died for it the spring twilight had darkened almost to gloom when he heard the click of the front door and the sound of his wife's light step phil she called where are you here he answered she came and stood framed in the doorway one hand pressed to her breast as she tried to see his face well she asked better than well he responded rising and going to her al you've done the trick it's fine do you mean it she cried and her voice was almost sharp in its eagerness is it really good generosity of praise was not of phil's nature even normally and the bitter recognition of his own deficiencies revealed by this day's work did not make it easier for him to give the tribute that was due 
but he stuck loyally to his finer instincts. It certainly is good, he replied. His self-respect rose with every word that he uttered, and each compliment came more easily than the last. That story of yours ought to make a ten-strike, he added. Oh, Phil! Her voice sounded as though she were about to cry. If it only would! You honestly think that you can find a publisher who will take it, and that it will be a success? I'm sure of it. There are a few crude places that I want to go over with you. Nothing to do with the theme itself, just matters of story construction. Oh, yes, yes, she cried. I want you to make all the corrections that you possibly can. Cut it and slash it as much as you please. There'll be mighty little of it to do, he told her. Astonishingly little, considering that it's a first book. They spent that evening going over the manuscript, and on the morrow Phil took it out to be typed. He was rather nervous and irritable during the next few days, but he never went back on his resolution to help his wife to success and to begrudge her nothing. Finally the typewritten copy came home and was re-read, and at last it became a question of a publisher. You'll take it for me? asked Allison. Certainly, if you want me to. And to your own publishers? I don't think you'd get any better ones. And Phil, there's just one thing more, dear. I want it published anonymously. She could no more fail to see the look of relief that passed over his face than he could prevent its passing. Nevertheless, why do you do that, Al? he asked. I want to. You shouldn't. It isn't as if it were a story to be ashamed of. It's well done, and it's going to make a hit. Now, Phil, that story is mine, isn't it? And I have a right to do as I please. Very well. I insist that it shall be published anonymously, and that not even your publishers shall know anything about the author. I want you simply to leave it with them, and say that there is just one stipulation. If they decide to publish it, they must do it anonymously. And unless you're willing to do that, I shall take it myself. Why, I'll do it, of course, if you want me to. But I can't see your point. However, Alison was so determined that there was no sense in further argument. At the end of a week, Phil had a note from his publishers. He returned from the interview very much excited. They wanted the book, and they liked the idea of anonymous publication. It was good advertising. Phil had demanded a generous sum in advance royalties, and was to receive it. By George, Al, you've hit it, he said. Of course, they were very careful not to be too enthusiastic. That's their business. But it was easy to see that they don't intend to let that manuscript get out of their office. When it came to a question of signing the contract, Alison insisted that her husband do it. She claimed very sensibly that if she appeared at all in the matter, the secret might leak out. Well, I can't for the life of me see why you should mind that said Phil, looking at her in a puzzled way. I don't understand you at all. Anyone would think you'd be crazy to come out in the open instead of hiding behind me all the time. He was growing as interested over the success of the mask, as though he were indeed its author. 
also although he never actually formulated the idea there was a feeling in the back of his brain that decency leaves a better aftertaste than meanness it is good to be able to pat yourself on the back proofreading would not begin for a month or so and summer was upon them they were feeling particularly affluent phil's five thousand from mrs deverall and the advance royalties on the mask made a generous addition to their income they decided not to spend the summer in town nor yet in coningsboro and they certainly never wanted to go back to that horrible cheap suburban hotel where they had been two years ago let's go farther away than that said alison how about europe asked her husband for a moment she looked radiant at the idea but after a little consideration she shook her head no she said i think not yet we'll go there before long though but i'm not quite ready and i shouldn't want to be rushed on my first trip abroad i should want the pleasures of anticipation then there's the proof it would be sure to make delay if all those batches of proof had to cross and recross the ocean and i have set my heart on seeing that book come out in october they had all the delight of looking over tourist books and discussing plans and their final decision was reached after a talk with one of phil's actor friends he assured them that there was only one summer resort in the world and that was sconset on the island of nantucket his tales of its quaintness and its many attractions appealed to both of his hearers alison was fascinated with the idea of an island and lighthouses and quaint streets with town pumps it all sounded so picturesque and different from anything that she had ever seen that her vote was immediately cast in favor of sconset and phil agreeing sconset it was for them that summer end of book three chapter one